Uh, okay, uh, good evening. Uh, we should start. Uh, my name is Dan Marlowe. I'm the chair of the physics department, and uh, I'd like to uh, welcome you to uh, McDonald Hall, which is uh, where we do our physics teaching, and uh, also, of course, welcome you to the, to the physics department. Okay. <laughs> talk, talk about spooky action at a distance. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, uh, and I'd, I'd like to uh, extend a special welcome to the members of the Hamilton family and uh, class of 1935 and kin who, who are here tonight. This is the... This is the uh, 32nd uh, annual uh, Donald Ross Hamilton lecture. Uh, the tradition is that um, uh, I, before introducing the speaker, I say a few words uh, about Hamilton, uh, basically a, a biographical sketch. Um, Donald Hamilton was born in Hartford, Vermont in 1914. Um, he was uh, a member of the class of 1935. And you'll see that there's a, a definite 1935 theme tonight. This newspaper headline is from the year 1935. And uh, it turns out that our speaker uh, was also uh, sort of from the class of 1935. Um, uh, OK. So um, Hamilton, uh, so the, and more generally, the class of 1935 has many connections to, to the physics department that persist to this day. For example, we meet uh, in the class of 1935 room. Uh, we have a, a monthly meeting of the faculty and research staff. Um, so, so, so there are many uh, uh, connections, and, and part of that are the surviving members of the class and, and uh, their kin. So. Um, after graduating from Princeton, Hamilton went on to graduate work at uh, Columbia, where he was a student of I.I. Robbie, uh, a very famous ph physicist, of course. Uh, Robbie was his PhD advisor. Um, okay, so like uh, many uh, physicists of his generation, in his, uh, er of course, the Second World War was breaking out, so Hamilton's uh, early uh, career was uh, devoted to supporting the war effort. He worked for the uh, Sperry Gyroscope Company and also uh, was associated with the MIT Radiation Lab. Um, after the war, he returned to pure research uh, and uh, joined the Princeton faculty, uh, I think, in 1946 or so, not too long after the war. Um, he uh, went up through the ranks and eventually became the uh, dean of the graduate school. And under his leadership, uh, the graduate school thrived. It expanded both in terms of the number of students uh, and also uh, several new uh, departments, areas of study were added. Um, unfortunately, uh, Hamilton's career was, was uh, cut short uh, when he fell ill uh, and uh, was basically forced into retirement. And then he uh, passed away in 1971. Um, but he, his, his, uh, if you talk to uh, people in the department, he's still uh, uh, very uh, fondly remembered for seminars he ran at his home and, and, and many things. So uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to honor him uh, uh, tonight. Okay, so um, the Hamilton lecturer this year 
is uh, David Merman. Before I introduce David, I'd like to just thank uh, some people who put this together. Uh, Bill Brinkman and uh, Kurt Callen uh, were sort of uh, the, the conspirators who, who got David here uh, and have helped uh, organize other parts of his, his visit. David's actually been on campus for uh, about two weeks and has given a colloquium and other more specialized seminars. So this is the, the, the public lecture part of a, a larger series of talks. Um, and then the other two people I'd like to thank are Helen Jew and uh, Angela Glenn, who uh, organized the, uh, the, the event. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount that goes into this, and, and I, I know from reading all the email uh, just how much of an effort it is. Okay, so let me introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, David Merman is the, Cor is the Horace White Professor of Physics Emeritus at Cornell University. Um, he received uh, a BA, an MS, and a PhD, all from Harvard University. Uh, upon getting his doctorate at Harvard, he went on to uh, research positions in Birmingham, England, and uh, UC San Diego. Uh, after that, he went to Cornell, where he's, he's been ever since. Uh, of course, he, he's got a fairly long list of visiting professorships and visiting lecturerships in various places. Um, David has also received uh, quite a few prizes. Um, I won't, uh, he, he's a member of the National Academy. I, I won't go through the whole list since time is short, but uh, there are at, at least two that I think are particularly germane till tonight. One is a, a prize given by the uh, American Physical Society, the Julius Lilienfeld Prize, and that is given for uh, people who, who uh, are highly accomplished in science and are able to uh, communicate the, uh, the excitement of science to uh, the general public. So that's a, a major prize within the society, and uh, you really have to be a utility player to, uh, to garner it. Um, and then uh, another one that's relevant uh, tonight is the uh, Russell Teaching Award uh, from Cornell. So, Without uh, further ado, let me introduce uh, Professor uh, David Merman. I actually met uh, Professor Hamilton 51 years ago uh, when I was trying to decide whether to tear myself away from Harvard or go to graduate school somewhere else. And I came here, and he was extremely friendly and courteous and uh, showed me around. Uh, but apparently he was not persuasive because, uh, through no fault of his own, I may say, uh, there were two main reasons for my deciding not to leave Cambridge. One was that uh, uh, my girlfriend was uh, still an undergraduate at Radcliffe. And uh, the second was I looked at that Gothic castle where they put graduate students and thought, this is just too depressing. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had no idea uh, things were going to be 1935-ish here. Uh, this is an article indeed. Oh, this thing really turns off quickly. Huh. So I just have to stand here and keep tapping it. But once I start changing things, it, it, won't, uh, it won't do that. This is from the 1935 uh, New York Times. Uh, you can see the New York Times hasn't changed its fonts very much. It's uh, early May, uh, five weeks after I was born, in fact. 
And in, in a sense, it, it sets the theme for the, uh, what I'd like to tell you tonight. I would like to uh, try to give you a sense of the way in which Einstein attacked the quantum theory and uh, what he meant uh, by uh, the statement that it is uh, correct but not complete and uh, why he was wrong in the expectation that a uh, fuller theory was possible and what he meant by a fuller theory. And it's a, a surprisingly long story. Uh, very little happened uh, for the next 30 years until a very important paper was written by John Bell which established uh, quite definitively that if quantum theory is correct, and indeed it is overwhelmingly correct, it is more correct than any theory I think we've ever had in the history of science, then it could not be completed in the sense that Einstein wanted to complete it. And uh, then another 25 years passed until 1990 when uh, three people uh, named Greenberger, Horn, and Zeilinger came up with a very neat version of Bell's argument, which I want to show to you. Um, before, before I leave uh, the New York Times, I mean, there, there are a few other nice things here, but uh, they're the kinds of things that might appeal only to a physicist. Uh, I believe a whole description of the physical reality can be provided eventually. Ah, yes, here's, and here we are, 1935, uh, and note the local boy makes good aspect. The dateline is Princeton, New Jersey, so it's entirely appropriate for this venue. And it goes on to explain how Professor Albert Einstein will attack science's important theory of quantum mechanics, a theory of which he was indeed a not, not a sort of grandfather, I would say, an unambiguous uh, grandfather. And it goes on uh, surprisingly accurate for the New York Times. I, I, I think things have declined, in fact, in the level of their science reporting since 1935. Uh, the other thing that it's fun to note is that a couple of days later, uh, the following appeared. Statement by Einstein. He can you read that in back? He says he did not authorize the report in the quantum theory, and he goes on to say, this is about two days later, any information upon which the article Einstein attacks the quantum theory in your issue of May 6th is based was given to you without my authority. It is my invariable practice to discuss scientific matters only in the appropriate forum, and I deprecate advanced publication of any announcement in regard to such matters in the secular press. <laughs> I, I love that use of the word secular. I mean, I mean, particularly with books coming out now on Einstein and religion. It, it shows that a sacred text was the physical review <laughs> in, in which the article, in fact, appeared uh, several weeks later. Anyway, Einstein was quite cross, and I believe he never forgave Podolsky, uh, the co-author who leaked it. So, without further ado, the preface is over, and here we go. 
And here's this mysterious set of symbols that various people complained about on the poster. Um, what, what we have up here is uh, uh, some imaginary apparatus. I'm, I'm going to try to uh, do a version of the, the great tradition uh, established by Faraday, but with a kind of Einsteinian uh, modification. I mean, Faraday right, was famous for giving great lecture demonstrations. Einstein uh, loved to do Gedanken experiments, thought experiments, uh, imaginary experiments that illustrate, that were based on physical, well-understood physical laws, and, or perhaps not well-understood physical laws, and, and explored the consequences of various physical assumptions. So I want to combine those two traditions by giving you here a Gedanken lecture demonstration. And this, this is uh, uh, part of my apparatus. Here it is up here on the screen. We'll, we'll come later to what all these pieces of apparatus mean. The, I mean, you will have to accept my fact that it is possible to build apparatus that behaves in the way I describe. The way, the way this particular apparatus uh, behaves is really quite simple. It provides a quite precise illustration of the kind of thing that Einstein was worried about when he wrote the 1935 article and the issues it gave rise to and the ultimate refutation of Einstein's argument. It's more than an analogy. It's not the precise case, the exact case that Einstein was dealing with, but it's a more contemporary version of that case. And the issues that it gives rise to are exactly the same. And one of the nice things about this Gedanken demonstration is it, I hope, enables you to see what all the issues are without really getting into any of the technical apparatus of the quantum theory whatsoever. These are uh, kinds of devices that uh, follow from very elementary features of the quantum theory. If the quantum theory is correct, it is possible to build certain pieces of machinery that behave in the way I will describe. And that behavior in itself is extremely strange. So in a sense, the strangeness is not in the quantum theory, but in the behavior of the world itself, as uh, the quantum theory has uh, led us to expect, and indeed has, has constantly uh, shown us, uh, does behave. Now, I, I had a kind of a summer tryout of this talk in Aspen uh, last summer, and an old friend was in the audience, and he was looking more and more sour as the talk went on, and uh, didn't say anything to me afterwards. And finally, at dinner, he said, he said, actually, he said, there was only one thing that really bothered me about your talk. He said, nobody in the audience will believe that quantum mechanics can possibly be right at the end of the talk. And you, what you left out was an explanation of the fact 
uh, that quantum mechanics is right. So I said, okay, when, when, when we get to the big time and I, I have the final version in Princeton, I will say to the audience something like this, which you should keep in mind. The quantum theory is the most accurate and successful theory in the history of science. Uh, I personally would say, and I'm, I'm happy to spend three more hours arguing with people about this, that it is the greatest intellectual achievement of the 20th century. But it's exceedingly strange. I'll remind you of that again at the end. If I don't remind you, remind me to remind you. Because I, I, I promise this friend that nobody would leave this room saying the quantum theory is wrong. Because it's right. Okay, you got that? Okay. Now, here we go. What have I done? Ah, funny thing with this weird way of giving a talk. I have to make sure the cursor is way over on the edge or I can't change the screen. Yeah. Let me, let me begin with a couple of statements which uh, will also be illustrating. Uh, Einstein wrote a letter to Max Born. This is actually sometime later than 1935. This is probably in the 1940s. Uh, trying to explain to Born, he never did manage to explain to Born what it was he really didn't like about the quantum theory. Born had it fixed in his head that it, what Einstein didn't like was that the quantum theory was statistical. And this pain Born, because Born was one of the authors of the statistical interpretation of the quantum theory. And Einstein kept trying to explain that that was not what really bothered him about the quantum theory. And he, Born was quite obtuse, I would say, in, in following these statements. And it led Einstein to clearer and clearer formulations. And one that I particularly like is this one. I cannot seriously believe in it, because the theory cannot be reconciled with the idea that physics should represent a reality in time and space free from spooky actions at a distance. And, and those are the spooky actions at a distance uh, that my talk is about, not, not the delayed transmission in the next room. Uh, notice also this word reality. Einstein was very concerned about reality. Here are a couple more quotes. Um, this is in a letter to Schrodinger, probably somewhat earlier. Most physicists simply do not see what sort of a risky game they're playing with reality. Reality as something independent of what is experimentally established. Yeah, that's kind of a dangerous thing. Reality is independent of what is experimentally established. But uh, Einstein was a clever guy, and he came up with a very clever way of uh, buttressing that argument. And then the, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paper itself, the one the New York Times got so excited about, uh, toward the end has this wonderful statement, no reasonable definition of reality could be expected to permit this. <laughs> so there's this obsession with reality. And we'll, we'll see what, what, from this Gedanken demonstration, uh, what it was that Einstein wanted to uh, assign reality to. Now, his uh, great interlocutor in uh, these debates was Niels Bohr, who I, I think it's fair to say was the second greatest physicist of the 20th century. 
And Bohr consistently took quite a different view of things. Uh, in particular, in, in uh, a, the volume on Einstein's 70th birthday, where all kinds of wonderful people uh, said all kinds of wonderful things, including Einstein himself, who published uh, in that book what he calls his obituary. It's a marvelous essay. Bohr also wrote a marvelous essay. And reminiscing about his arguments with Einstein, uh, said, I was strongly reminded of the importance of utmost caution in all questions of terminology and dialectics. And uh, I, I will try to be extremely cautious. And you should be extremely cautious in, in uh, interpreting what I'm going to be telling you. Here's some more Bohr quotes, uh, which are, in a sense express the position antithetical to Einstein. Uh, this is one which is actually an indirect quote. It's Owa Peterson, who is an associate of Bohr, in, when he wrote uh, Bohr's obituary, uh, said when asked whether the algorithm of quantum mechanics could be considered as somehow mirroring an underlying quantum world, Bohr would answer, there is no quantum world. Talk about reality. There is no, well, there is no quantum world. There is only an abstract quantum physical description. It is wrong to think that the task of physics is to find out how nature is. Physics concerns what we can say about nature. And that, that sort of draws the battle lines there. Of course, uh, Bohr didn't say that. Oh, Peterson said Bohr said that. And uh, I, I actually uh, spent some time uh, talking to various uh, uh, people who were postdocs with Bohr, uh, one of whom was Vicky Weisskopf, who denied strenuously that Bohr could ever have said such an outrageous thing. And then about two years later, I was talking to Weisskopf's uh, friend, also a close associate of Bohr, uh, Rudy Parles, and telling him Weisskopf's reaction. And before I could get to Weisskopf and had just repeated the quote, Parles said, yes, he said, that's exactly the kind of thing <laughs> Bohr used to say. Uh, so, in, in, I mean, in a certain sense, uh, things are subtle in this field. There, there's a certain amount of intricacy. Ah, yeah, here's, here's something Bohr did write, which is actually very similar, uh, but it, it's, it's expressed in much more Bohrish prose. Bohr's prose tended to be quite dense. Uh, physics is to be regarded not as the study of something a priori given. Well, that's, there is no quantum world. Uh, uh, rather, it, physics should be regarded as the development of methods for ordering and surveying human experience. That's physics concerns, what we can say about nature. So uh, I'm inclined to believe that Peterson probably got it right on the basis of this, which is a published Bohr statement. So, so much for background. Here's, here's my apparatus, or here's a basic piece of the apparatus. Uh, this thing over here is, uh, of course, a black box, and on the black box is a yellow button. And uh, what we're going to do is push that button, 
And over here is something that I call a detector uh, because it's going to do something after the button is, is pressed, namely uh, the detector you notice has a little horn here and at the other end is the red light and the blue light and one of those lights is going to go on. So let's, and now the Gedanken demonstration begins in earnest, let's run this. I press the button. Right, got that? I'm, I'm very proud of the way those figures don't, don't, uh, if you watch carefully, you will see a few that jump. But uh, I started off well. It's not PowerPoint. It's all done by hand, the painful, old-fashioned way. So there we go. That's a piece of apparatus. So I uh, press the button, and a little bit later, a blue light goes on at the detector. Now, I, I've drawn, as you can see, uh, something going from the source to the detector, and, and we'll call it the thing. And in general, the thing is pretty hard to see, so how do I know that there's a thing that goes from the source to the detector? I mean, we, we want to exercise utmost caution. Well, the simplest way to commit yourself to that is to put a brick wall between the source and the detector. And now, uh, boom, I press the button, and nothing happens. If I, I remove the brick wall, the light goes on. So, uh, cautious as we are, you will not get into trouble. I am not leading you down the garden path when I say the reason uh, a light goes on at the detector when I press the button at the source is that something, which being cautious I will call a thing, uh, goes from the source to the detector. So far, so good? And uh, what's interesting is what color light flashes. So, and in fact, now in subsequent slides, I'm, I will often summarize this by one picture, which has the source where I press the button, and then the thing coming out of the source, and a little later the thing going into the detector, and a light going on. So this is actually four different moments of time. I, th I think in most of these figures where I'm summarizing a lot of different pictures, I put arrows in front of the particles. The thing, the thing. Don't let me call it a particle. Although in a certain sense it is a particle, but I prefer to call it a thing. And in other senses it isn't a particle. But that, that's another story. Which we're, we're, It's a thing. And it, 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 it connects the pressing of the button on the source to the flashing of the light at the detector. Okay, and now there's a question. I just put this up here to remind you of what it is I'm talking about. Uh, when, when I'm saying important things about it, it will be bigger. Uh, question. Is the color flashed by the detector a response to a real property? Real in the sense Einstein wanted things to be real. A real property of the thing from the source. And if it is, let's call that property color. Although, of course, it doesn't mean any, any more than color in particle physics these days means color. It doesn't mean that, that the thing is, is colored. It's just a shorthand way of saying there are two kinds of things. Those uh, that, when they enter a detector, result in the blue light flashing, and those that, when they enter a detector, result in the red light flashing. And let's say uh, the first kind are colored blue, and the second kind are colored red. Right, so the color of the thing is just shorthand for whatever it is about the thing 
uh, that's responsible for the detector behaving in the way it does. Now, uh, of course, uh, being extremely cautious, uh, there's no particular reason why there should be anything about the thing that uh, is related in any way to what the detector does. Here are some other possibilities. Other uh, things coming from the source could all be identical. And uh, the detector could dis decide uh, which color to flash by a uh, random number generator, by tossing a coin. Or uh, the detector could be programmed to flash uh, red or blue according to some prearranged sequence on a tape inside the detector that had nothing at all to do. That, that all, all the, uh, the arrival of the thing did was to say, okay, move to the next place in the tape and then flash. Or it could depend on something totally extraneous, like, like the weather or the time of day or who knows what. Now, here's a way to rule out these other possibilities. Uh, very simply, this is stage two of my Gedanken demonstration. I now produce from my uh, apparatus room back there a testing device. This is a testing device, and it works in the following way. I press the button in the source, and the thing comes out, and it enters the testing device. The testing device flashes blue. The thing emerges on the other side, enters the detector. The detector flashes blue. Let's try it again. Press the button. Thing emerges. Testing device flashes red. What do you think the detector is going to do? Flashes red. Okay. This uh, tells us that indeed the detector, the detector is responding to the particle and that the particle can indeed be said to have color. I mean, think of, think of the other ex explanation. I think of what you can do with this testing device now. You could, you could take the testing device and whenever it flashed blue, put a brick in the way so that nothing happens or so that, that, that uh, the thing that goes through it never gets to the detector and, let, and, and build up a collection of things that are associated with the testing device flashing red, and when you send those things to the detector, it flashes red every time. I mean, I, I should now stop and do this for you thousands and thousands of times. And you should see that, by God, the testing device always gets it right. And using the testing device, I can make a bunch of things that are, are all colored red, in the sense that if I send all those things to the detector, it always flashes red. I can make things that are always colored blue. So that really rules out all those explanations and seems to establish, in fact, I would say it does establish. I'm still not leading you down the garden path. It does establish that things that emerge from the testing device are either colored blue or colored red, according to what the testing device does. Good. Ah, uh, that, that's where the Gedanken demonstration is. I've just shown you the testing device, and it's behaved. If, if, we, we, if we had weeks, I could show you thousands of runs, and it would never deviate from what I told you. What? People have them, yeah, 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 yeah. People have made testing devices, 
And again, I, I mean, in a sense, underlining lying this ideal experiment is what the quantum theory tells us. And the quantum theory gives us any number of uh, uh, quite straightforward ways of making testing devices, which, you know, have various degrees of perfection. I said it works all the time. Maybe it only works 99.9% .9 of the time, but there's an ideal testing device. And I want to tell you about the ideal situation. So, yes, this, this is just what I've told you. It's a summary of what I've said. Now there's a new question. I mean, we, we agree that something that emerges from a testing device has color. It's the kind of thing that either results in a detector flashing red or blue. But, new question. Does a thing entering the testing device, we're being cautious again, does a thing entering the device have color that the testing device detects, or is color given to it by the testing device? Well, we can answer that with a second testing device. And by God, you see, it works uh, when this testing device indicates that the thing has, uh, is colored blue, then, by God, the original testing device indicates the thing is colored blue. But that doesn't really help us, because now we want to know whether, whether the thing, before it enters the second testing device, has color, or whether the color was conferred on it by the second testing device. So that, that really doesn't help us. It only shows that the first testing device correctly identifies the color of things that have color. But it fails to establish that untested things have color. And that's, that's the question that bothered Einstein. Do untested things have color? In that quotation I read you at the beginning, he asked, is there a reality, and here are his words, and he used the word reality, of course, independent of what is experimentally established by the testing device. So, we want to know if untested things have color. And uh, the answer to that question emerges uh, from a rather more general situation in which there are two different kinds of detectors. A uh, type 1 detector and a type 2 detector. So now I, I, I produce from the back room two kinds of detectors. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say uh, if a thing has the property uh, that it causes a uh, type 1 detector to flash red, then it, uh, it, it is one colored. It is one colored red. And if it causes a type 1 detector to flash blue, it's one colored blue. And now we want to know a, a, a deeper kind of question, which is, well, our original question now, for if we had only type 1 detectors, would be do things, untested things, have one color? Uh, now there, there was a, a, another question that came up, which is uh, not only uh, do untested things have one color, but do untested things also have two color? And can they have one color and two color at the same time? Uh, from now on, it's much easier uh, to combine uh, the type 1 and type 2 detectors into a single detector with a switch. And uh, one can change the contents of the detector from type 1 to type 2 by just turning that switch, either to point to 1 or to point to 2. 
And in fact, in, in many versions of this actual experiment, that's almost the way it works. The, the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 detector is that something's rotated inside it. So that's, uh, right, and it, it's just, as, as, as we'll see, much, much simpler to have one box with a switch uh, than, than uh, two detectors. And there are two kinds of testing devices. There's a type 1 testing device that always works with a type 1 detector. I mean, here it's working. Uh, but half the time it's, wor- it's right and half the time it's wrong with a type 2 detector. Yeah. Incidentally, that's, that's also very important if you're being cautious because you might say, how do I know the type 1 detector and the type 2 detectors are different? And, and this, shows, this shows that they are different because there's a certain kind of testing device that always works with a type 1 detector and be, is random, uh, works as often as it doesn't work with a type 2 detector. It also establishes that there are two types of testing devices. Being extremely cautious, right? Every, everything is determined just by the data without opening up these boxes and seeing what's inside them. Right? So there are two kinds of detectors and two kinds of testing devices. Here's a type 2 testing device. Uh, Here it is shown failing with a type 1 detector, uh, but working with a type 2 detector. Now, uh, what Einstein wanted to know uh, was whether a thing could have both one color and two color at the same time. And after a long, famous series of debates with Bohr, uh, I mean, it, it would be true if there was a testing device of this sort that flashed two lights when the thing went through it, and uh, either of the two indications always worked, right? If, if you had this super testing device, uh, in this particular case, it, it's flashed uh, red for one and blue for two, and if you then chose to make this a type one detector, by God, the red light flashed, and if you chose it to make it type 2, the blue light flashed. If there were such a testing device, then it would be fair to say that things that emerged from it had both one color and two color. And after a long, long argument with Bohr and with Heisenberg, Einstein conceded uh, that there could be no such testing device. Nevertheless, he insisted things ought to have both one color and two color, even if you couldn't learn what they were with this kind of testing device. Now, you might say, why not, why not uh, make such a, a joint testing device by just combining a type 1 detector, uh, following a type 1 detector by a type 2 detector? And uh, the answer is that if you put a type 2, sorry, testing, testing device, not detector, if, the reason I keep confusing them is that testing devices and detectors, as we'll see, are not that different from each other under certain circumstances. Well, if I put a type 2 testing device between a type 1 testing device and a detector and then test for one color, it no longer works. Right here, here's the, the thing. The type 1 testing device flashes red. The type 2 t- testing device happens in this case to flash red, it could equally well flash blue, uh, and the detector is then set to one, and it doesn't flash red. It it 
it's an act, it, it happens to flash blue. Testing for two color messes up one color. The, the, the testing device that tests for two colors screws up the one color. This particle emerging from the type one device has one color after it emerges from a type two device. It no longer has one color. It behaves randomly at a type one detector. Uh, same thing, testing for, for uh, oh, wrong, wrong caption here. Testing for two color messes up one color. Sorry, did I say it right? Yeah, testing for one color messes up two color. I should, I should have more confidence in myself. Good. So, uh, what Einstein wanted to know is even though there's no way to learn what both of them are, can a thing nevertheless have both a one color and a two color? And here it is again. Reality is something independent of what is experimentally established. Uh, now, an obvious answer to Einstein's question uh, uh, you can find in a letter that Pauli wrote to Max Born at, at the time that Einstein was trying to explain them what was bothering. And Pauli said, uh, one should know, talking about Einstein's insistence that uh, things should have both one color and two color, Pauli said, Pauli was a, a third member of that great generation who uh, established the quantum theory. Uh, one should no more rack one's brains about the problem of whether something one cannot know anything about exists all the same than about the ancient question of how many angels are able to sit on the point of a needle. Interesting uh, Swiss variation of uh, dancing on the head of a pin, the more extravagant <laughs> American version. I don't know what the English version is. Usually it differs. Is there an English version? Don't know. And uh, so the, the, the point is, why worry about things you can't know anything about? And interestingly, Polly turns out to have been wrong on this, that there is something to be said for worrying about things you can't know anything about. And in fact, you can show that they don't exist. So Einstein had this neat idea to establish that, uh, that untested things did have one color. Uh, the idea was this. He, and, and this, this is the content of the 1935 paper. He, in the 1935 paper with, with Podolsky and Rosen, discovered a situation in which quantum mechanics said it was possible to set up a situation in which the thing left something behind it when it went to the detector. And furthermore, you could find out what the thing was going to do at the detector, not by interposing a testing device here, but by testing the stuff left behind. The idea being that testing the stuff the thing left behind can't mess up the thing, it can only mess up the stuff left behind. So here's uh, the essence of the einstein podolsky rosen argument. I press the button, and out comes the thing with some stuff. Some other stuff comes out, too, and the stuff is left behind, and it goes to the detector. And we want to find out beforehand 
what the detect what color the detector is going to flash, not by testing the thing, but by testing the stuff left behind. And now we're getting close to the mysterious poster for this talk. These are not uh, anti-ballistic missiles, uh, to which spooky action at a distance would also apply. They are stuff left behind testing devices. And it works like this. You push the button at, on the detector. Well, let's see, maybe, whoops. Pushing this the wrong way. Ah, I guess we're not there yet. Ah, but this is every, every, everything that I've said, right? I've said you can find out not by testing the thing, but by testing the stuff left behind. And since that can't mess up the thing, if you can find out uh, what it's going to do at either type of detector by test on the stuff left behind, then indeed the thing has one color and two colors. Because the test doesn't mess up the thing, it only messes up the stuff left behind. So now, here we go. The thing comes out, it's left something behind, and now if we want to test for one color, we test the stuff left behind. Uh, the stuff left behind detector uh, flashes red. Here's the thing. At this point, we haven't even decided what the detector is going to be, but since we've tested it for one color, let's set the detector to one, and by God, it works. This is the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment. You don't test the thing, you test the stuff left behind. And it works just as well as testing the thing, except that you can't say the test messes up the thing, because it only messes up the stuff left behind. And, and the, the ingenuity of that paper was to realize that quantum mechanics gave rise to a situation where such a test was possible. But you don't need to know quantum mechanics because I've just shown you. I'll show you again. Here it is. We'll test the stuff left behind for two color. Uh-huh. Okay. Now we're going to set the detector to two. And it works again. I could do it a thousand times. It would always work. It's wonderful. It, it's a really neat idea. And Einstein's conclusion, here it is, the thing has both one color and two color. And here it is proclaiming that it's going to be, in this particular case, red at a type 1 detector, blue at a type 2 detector. Uh, and although you, you, you can't find out what both the one color and the two color is, you can learn either one in a way that doesn't mess up the thing. It only messes up the stuff left behind. And I've actually taken a literal quotation from Einstein and simply replaced the actual particular thing he was talking about by our thing. Every statement about the thing, which we arrive at as a result of testing the stuff it left behind, has to be valid for the thing, even if no test whatsoever is carried out on the stuff it left behind. Because... Doing a test in the stuff left behind can't alter the nature of the thing. That's his argument. Bohr objects. Uh, this came out in Physical Review, and within uh, a month, a paper by Bohr with the same title came out in Physical Review, and Bohr said, all it, his answer, which people, by the way, have heatedly debated ever since what it is Bohr is saying in that paper. But it seems to me what he's saying is all it means for the thing to have one color, 
or two color is that the one color or two color has been indicated by a type one or type two test. Since you, now, you can't do both tests, one after the other on the stuff left behind, because either test messes up the stuff left behind, says Bohr. And, and therefore, if you take this extremely cautious view of what it means to say for a thing to have both one color and two color, uh, then uh, they haven't established anything. Because you can do either a type 1 test or a type 2 test and the stuff left behind. You can't do both in a given run of the experiment because the type 1 test messes up the stuff left behind. And everybody agreed. This was no surprise that the test messed up the stuff left behind. But it did seem to be missing the point. Yes, yes, either test messes up the stuff left behind. But in the absence of spooky actions at a distance, uh, it can't mess up the thing. I mean, it, it, it's not doing anything to the thing. It's only doing something to the stuff left behind. So unless the stuff left behind somehow sends signals to the thing saying, I've been given a type 1 test, acquire a type 1 color, uh, it, it hasn't altered the thing. It's only altered the stuff left behind. And Bohr's reply, and I will give you his very words, is it does mess up the thing because it messes up the very conditions which define the possible types of predictions regarding the future behavior of the thing. So there you are. One, one, one has to ponder Bohr. My, my respect for Bohr over the years has grown. He's a very wise man. And, and, and it's extraordinary that... that uh, this kind of philosophical issue can be so close to fundamental nuts and bolts, bread and butter physics. Uh, now we have the reaction of John Bell. John Bell is the man who in uh, 1964, almost 30 years after Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, uh, showed that Einstein was wrong and that, that uh, uh, things could not have the properties Einstein wanted them to have. But his, his reaction to that exchange between uh, Einstein and Bohr was, it is so reasonable to assume that the things carry with them programs telling them how to behave. This is so rational that I think that when Einstein saw that and the others refused to see it, he was the rational man. Uh, the other people, dot, 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 and we'll come back in a little while to what dot, dot, dot stands for. Uh, the other people were burying their heads in the sand. I feel that Einstein's intellectual superiority over Bohr in this instance was enormous. A vast gulf between the man who saw clearly what was needed and the obscurantist. And indeed, when, when I was a graduate student, which was before Bell did his work, I agreed. I agree. Incidentally, the, the whole subject was a kind of dirty secret that graduate students weren't supposed to think about. Uh, I learned about it from a naughty graduate student <laughs> who, who worried about such things. And indeed, at my qualifying exam, I was advised to stop spending so much time with this guy. <laughs> so, uh, now we come to the demonstration that Bohr was right. Yeah, I don't think I started until about 10 past. Is that right? So I have 15 minutes? 
that fair? Any, anybody who wants to can leave at any point. Uh, this is all on the web, by the way. I put it up on the web this morning. So you, you, if you get a vague glimmering of what I'm saying, uh, then you can check it out. On the other hand, if you go to the web without listening to me, it won't make any sense at all. So, <laughs> so probably you'd better stay. Okay, this is, is a, a, a very nice refinement of Bell's uh, demonstration uh, by Greenberger, Horn, and Zollinger in uh, 1989. And it's now, uh, here's my latest set of apparatus, and you can see uh, I now have three detectors. Uh, they're all, all identical detectors, uh, but there's detector A, detector B, and detector C. And now uh, when I press the button on the source, three things Three things come out. Uh, they go to detectors A, B, and C. And uh, there they are, going out, going to the detectors. And uh, let's, for talking about them, let's label the thing by the uh, detector, the things by the detectors they're going to. So there's thing A, thing B, and thing C, which uh, Actually, now that I think of it, uh, resonates with either the cat in the hat or, or possibly the cat in the hat comes back. I don't remember whether it's volume one or volume two. So try to ignore that. Uh, we have thing A, which goes to detector A. Thing B goes to detector B. Thing C goes to detector C. And again, uh, what was clever about Greenberger, Horn, and Zollinger was realizing that according to the quantum theory, it's possible to set up a situation in which things are going to behave the way I'm about to show you they behave. So, uh, yeah. Okay, now, stuff left behind. Uh, we are going to regard the stuff left behind by things, we're going to regard things A and things B as the stuff that's left behind by things C. And uh, the stuff left behind detectors are going to be detectors. The stuff left behind testing devices are going to be detectors A and detector B. Uh, but of course, this is this is a completely symmetrical situation. Uh, so I can equally well regard things A and C as the stuff left behind by thing B, or things B and C as the stuff left behind by thing A. So there are a lot of options available to us now, more options. So, and here's the experiment. I press the button, and three things go off. Yeah, notice uh, that I don't decide uh, whether it's going to be a type 1 or a type 2 detector until the things are far apart from each other. So while they're together and can sort of plot how to behave, uh, they have to be prepared for either possibility, since uh, the choice of uh, what type of detector they're going to enter isn't made until they're far apart from each other. And then they go in and, uh, yeah, you, can you see that that's flashing red up there? I have a little trouble seeing it. Each, each detector flashes either red or blue. And uh, from that data, we can make a little table, uh, uh, detector A, B, and C. We have to indicate in the table whether it was type 1 or type 2 and what color lights flashed. Right, and that's one run of the experiment. We're going to do that over and over and over again. And uh, this, again, is just to remind you of what it is we're talking about. Uh, 
And now the, the wonderful thing about the situation that Greenberger, Horn, and Zollinger uh, found uh, was certain features of the data. Uh, and here are the important features. Uh, if one detector is ends up being uh, type 1, and the other two end up being type 2, an odd number of lights always flash blue. Do it over and over and over again. Uh, we can call that a 1-2-2 experiment. And it's also true for 2-1-2 and 2-2-1 experiments. Odd number of lights always flash blue. It's either three blues or one blue and two reds. But uh, if all three detectors end up type 1, then an odd number of lights always flash red. That is an even number flash blue. So they're either no blues or two blues. And uh, all the other cases, uh, all three type 2, or uh, only a single one type 2, uh, are of no interest. But it, it turns out the behavior is totally random in those cases. But we're going to concentrate on these four cases. Okay, now the, the point is that from this particular rule, that in a 2-1-2 run, 2-2-1-2 run, an odd number of detectors flash blue, we can learn the two color of the thing going to detector C from the stuff it left behind. This is the point where you have to start thinking, by the way. I realize it's unfair to uh, just sort of engage in idle chit-chat for 50 minutes and then say, okay, now, now that you're all asleep, the time has come to start thinking. Uh, but wake up. Uh, because this requires a small amount of thought. Suppose I want to learn the two-color of the thing going to detector C. Well, what I do is I move detector C a little farther away so that I can uh, use detectors A and B to test the stuff it left behind. And I guess in this picture, you probably can't see it. I've, I've set A to 2 and B to 1. And C is going to be set to 2. Now, so I send the stuff left behind. Ah, it says it here. Type 2 at A and type 1 at B. Uh, in that particular case, and, and detector C is going to be set to 2, an odd number always flash blue. So if detector A and detector B both flash blue or both flash red, then the thing going to C has to have two colored blue. Because an odd number have to flash blue altogether. And this, yeah, if it flashed red, an even number would have flashed blue, two or zero. On the other hand, if A flashes blue and B flashes red, or the other way around, then since an odd number have to flash blue in toto, other thing going to see has to have two color red. So I've, I've done the einstein podolsky rosen thing. I've learned what the thing going to detector C is going to do by testing the stuff left behind. It always works. Okay, same thing. I, I can learn the one color at C. All I have to do is set both of these to two. It's exactly the same argument as before. Only the names and colors and the switch settings have been changed. Uh, also, I can learn... But on the other hand, I can learn... Uh, either the one color or the two color of the thing going to be, 
uh, from the stuff it left behind, A and C, in exactly the same way. This thing is completely symmetric. Or I can learn either the one color or the two color of the thing going to A from the stuff it left behind. So I can use the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment to establish that every one of those things, all three of them, have both one color and two color because whichever thing I want to learn in advance of the detection what it's going to do, I can learn by testing uh, the stuff it's left behind. And here we are doing it again. Okay. So, Einstein's conclusion was all three things have one color and two color. It's true, you can only learn one of them for each thing. But the other one must exist all the same. Because you could have learned it just as well by test on only on the stuff left behind. And uh, now you, you can say, well, okay, here's a case where I've, I've learned uh, that uh, the two color of thing A is blue, the one color of thing B is red, and the two color of thing C is red, and I don't know the others. Uh, so, but they must have some values. So uh, what can we say? What can we say about this? This is where the Sudoku puzzle, that if you read this very small print on the poster for this talk, comes in. I, I now want to uh, imagine what these additional possibilities could be, consistent with all the rules. And an easy way to see it is just uh, to write down the rules again. Here are the rules we have to obey. Uh, that, uh, and I mean, here are the, uh, the three things, A, B, and C. And uh, the one color of A, which notice appears both here and here, and uh, the two color of A, and here's the two color of blue, which appears in two of these cases, as does the one color of B. Uh, they have to have the feature uh, that in this row, there's an odd number of blue colors in this row, an odd number of blue, in this row, an odd number of blue, and in this row, an odd number of red. So uh, let's try it. Let's look at the first row first. Uh, this works. Suppose A is one colored red, and B is two colored blue, and C is two colored red. That's consistent with an odd number always flashing blue. Now, uh, I can also, uh, the one color of A appears twice, so this one must also become red, and this two must become blue, and this two must become red. So let's do that. Okay, now we're a little more constrained. Over here, an odd number always flash blue, so if A is uh, two colored blue, B must be one colored red, or vice versa, and that's it. Because if they're all uh, run colored red, then zero flash blue and zero is an even number. So let's try A uh, two, has two color blue, B has uh, one color red. And now again, I can make this blue two blue and this one red, which I will do. And now 
Uh, in this case, one, an odd number flash blue, so one has to be uh, has to be uh, colored blue, and it appears down here, so it has to be colored blue. But then an even number flash red, so one must be colored red. But then this one has to be colored red and an even number flash blue. So I made a bad start. Now. Uh, on the other hand, there aren't very many other possibilities you can try. And if you try them all, you will discover uh, that none of them work. And in fact, there's an easy way to see that none of them work. Uh, here are the rules. I, I want to place each of these ones and twos by a colored one and a colored two. And uh, the rule is that I have an odd number of blue in, in this row, an odd number of blue in this row, an odd number of blue in this row, and an odd number of red, which means an even number of blue in this row. So the total number of blue numerals in this table is going to be odd plus odd plus odd plus even. Here's the place where you have to do some mathematics. Odd plus odd plus odd plus even is odd. Right? Now, on the other hand, in each column, uh, each uh, color appears. Uh, if, if A is one colored blue, it, there's a blue here and a blue here, two blues. If it's one colored red, there's a red here and a red here, no blues. The same for the two color of A. They're either both these twos are blue or both these twos are red. In this column, there are an even number of blues. In this column, there are an even number of blues. In this column, there are an even number of blues. So another way of adding up the number of blues is by column rather than by row. And another piece of mathematics, even plus even plus even is even. So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen argument, which, which is just as powerful in this situation, as it was in the original Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paper, leads to a conclusion uh, that is inconsistent with the data uh, that gave rise to the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen uh, hypothesis in the first place. Now I'll give you that bell quote with the ellipses left out, uh, reading only the relevant parts. Uh, the other people, here's my first ellipsis, Although history has justified them, we're burying their heads in the sand. And then uh, vast gulf between the man who saw clearly Einstein what was needed and the obscurantist bore. So for me, the final ellipsis, for me it is a pity that Einstein's idea doesn't work. The reasonable thing just doesn't work. Now, I'm back to my friend in Aspen. Does this mean that quantum mechanics is wrong? No. And, and, and a red no, a blue no, and even a purple no. It's the most accurate and successful scientific theory in human history. But what it tells us, in my opinion, is sometimes very peculiar. So, getting back to, I mean, you, you, you now know all the facts. And, and at, at, at this point, people, uh, 
as perhaps we'll see during the question period, tend to degenerate into incoherent uh, statements and shouting at each other and, and that kind of thing. But at, at this point, you're in as good a position as, as almost anybody to think about what it means yourself. Uh, I mean, you can say, well, does this mean there are spooky actions at a distance? Does this mean <clears throat> that testing the stuff it left behind alters the character of a thing? Uh, I mean, because we, we, one certainly does have the option of learning either the one color or the two color of any one of the things by testing only the stuff it leaves behind it. On the other hand, we now know that all three things cannot have both a one color and a two color because there's no way of making that consistent with all the uh, tests you might be doing. And therefore, the argument for spooky actions at a distance is that the act of testing the stuff it leaves behind it must confer one color or two color on at least one of the things. Is this action at a distance? Or... Uh, to say something slightly improbable for one of my, who was born in 1935, or is it no different from my wife's having our first baby in Ithaca, New York, uh, mysteriously conferring fatherhood on me in Princeton, New Jersey? Is, is somehow, is somehow uh, one color or two color like fatherhood? Because it's amazing. Action at a distance. The baby is born in Ithaca, and bam, faster than the speed of light, I become a father. Wasn't a father before, and I'm a father. <laughs> well, well, you can say, yes, it is different, because the thing can be tested by a detector that correctly reveals it's one color or two color, uh, but there's no test you can perform on me in New Jersey to determine whether I am a father. Uh, asking my wife doesn't work unless I've spoken with her in New York on an ordinary telephone, which is not spooky action at a distance. Well, you could say, but uh, is it really different? Because we can only be sure that our detector has correctly revealed the one color or two color until we talk to the people who have tested the stuff left the thing behind. So maybe that's like my having to call my wife to discover whether I have acquired fatherhood. But then you can say, yes, it really is different because after doing it thousands of times, as you've seen, uh, we find that the detector always agrees with the test on the stuff left behind, so we don't really need to check. And you can go back and forth. And I invite you to do so after carefully studying, carefully studying what you find on my website. Ah, yes, this, this means nothing whatsoever. This is... This is I mean, I mean, it's an appro appropriate uh, for a Gedanken demonstration to end with a rhetorical homework problem. And it, it's there simply to call to your attention the fact that uh, I have, uh, at about five occasions, uh, taught uh, a course in quantum mechanics to non-scientists where I try to teach them enough quantum mechanics so they can see what it was that Greenberger, Horn, and Zollinger noticed. And the final homework assignment is to confirm that indeed uh, what they noticed does indeed lead to precisely this behavior. And 
half of the kids in the class are able to do the final homework assignment after only six weeks of lessons in uh, quantum mechanics. Of course, very sharply focused on, on this conclusion. Uh, physicists in the audience who, who read this have been known to storm out in a state of fury and say, for God's sakes, why didn't you tell us that's what it was at the beginning instead of making all that fuss? So, there it is, the rhetorical homework assignment. Uh, references, a wonderful article by Einstein. Uh, it came out in 48, which is much, much clearer than the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paper, and much less technical. Uh, appeared in German in an obscure place called Dialectica, but it's actually reprinted in English in the Born-Einstein letters. And the Born-Einstein letters were very recently reissued in paperback. Uh, I think you can get them at Amazon or Barnes & Nobles. They're wonderful, absolutely wonderful reading. I mean, they talk about quantum mechanics, but they also talk about everything that was going on, the war, what it's like to live in a foreign country, how nice it is that Born finally won the Nobel Prize and will have enough money to live on. It's, it's great stuff. And there are letters from Mrs. Born, who lectures Einstein all the time. And anyway, recommended. But in addition, there's this terrific essay by Einstein expressing this stuff. Uh, there's the Greenberger Horn-Zellinger paper. Uh, there's an article I wrote uh, shortly after which uh, kind of refines their argument to the, to the form I've just told you about. And then in uh, just uh, the beginning of the 21st century or the end of the 20th, uh, the Zeilinger group in Vienna actually uh, did what uh, a, a sort of funny class of experiments, which I would call super uh, lecture demonstrations, real lecture demonstrations, where they actually managed to produce real apparatus uh, that really, uh, within margins of experimental error, uh, produces the data that quantum mechanics predicts, which surprises no physicist and interests some. Uh, and finally, uh, if, if you uh, want to go through this strange experience again, uh, I just put it up this morning. Uh, so the easiest way to find it is to Google Merman homepage. Uh, and you will then get to my homepage. And, uh, Oh, it's not spooky. I forget. It's the whole title of the lecture. It's obvious. I say, on April 12th in Princeton, I talked about, and if you then click on it, you'll, you'll get all this stuff. Thank you for your patience. Ah, now I can have some water. Okay, we have uh, time for some questions. Hi there. Um, so I realize you kind of stayed away from answering this question specifically, uh, but in the spirit of what Einstein was looking for, um, some kind of true, real depiction of, of what reality was while at the same time being actually experimentally correct, um, 
it seems extraneous to demand that, like, you actually have an independent one color and a two color rather than a mixture of the two. And the demonstration that was shown there, and actually every demonstration that I'm aware of, um, doesn't seem to rule out some kind of function of the different possible measurements that you could do. Do you have anything to say on that? There's something, well, Bell's theorem, and, and it's supposed to rule out a deterministic well, no, I, mean, I mean, the motivation is that it appears that the deterministic relation is already there. It's in the fact that the test, that the testing device always agrees with the detector. And that that's, seems to suggest, that the obvious mm -hmm. explanation for that is that the testing device is indeed producing particles that are capable of making a detector behave in a particular way. So in a sense, the determinism isn't, uh, that particular kind of determinism isn't uh, taken for granted. It's inferred in what appears to be a reasonable way from the data. So, I mean, so I, don't, I don't think I've sneaked it in, or that Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen sneaked it in. It was, as Bell said, it's, it's the reasonable thing to assume. And it's quite remarkable. That's wrong. That, that there, the, are, there are these perfect correlations that have no mechanism. The, the correlations are, are, are perfect. I agree with that part of the experiment. The, the question is, is really, there's a statement of, of Bell's theorem which seems to rule out only these hidden variable theories that have a definite result of what the, the true value of, of say, the one yeah. color or the two color is, yeah. rather than some... Well, there, I mean, like, there, there are weaker versions of the argument that, that rule out certain joint distributions for behaviors that the testing device mm -hmm. and, and the detector, again, based on reasonable assumptions about uh, what it means for a, a thing and a stuff left behind to be correlated by virtue of the fact that they were once together and shared certain information. And, and, and the more powerful versions of, more general versions of the argument talk about constraints that that imposes on joint distributions. And then, then the deterministic part, you know, then it's extended to mm. uh, probabilistic as well as deterministic situations. Are you a philosopher? Uh, no, no. Ah. Good. I mean, sorry, I, I didn't mean to offend any philosophers in the house. I, I admire your, your philosophical disposition. I can't see who you're running to. Um, I apologize, I am a philosopher. Ah, I, I apologize. My question was always um, sort of what the upshot of this is because so it seems like there's some information that the thing is getting from the stuff left behind. Is there any way that the people at the detector can get information from the people at the source um, using this? Is there like a, the, yeah. a spooky practical upshot? No, there is not a spooky practical upshot. That, that's, that's an important point to make. Thank you. Uh, 
The point is that you that the behavior of the testing device and the detector are individually both random. You can't control what the testing. I mean, it would be nice if you could say, okay, let, let's uh, put into the stuff left behind the testing device that, that we know is going to flash red because then we can signal red at the detector. So if you just one, you know, there, every, everything is type one. So. Uh, but you can't do that. You have no way of controlling what the testing device is going to do. It flashes red or blue randomly. And it's just that whatever it flashes, the detector flashes the same way. So you can't signal. Is that a necessary feature, whatever? Yes. You can, you can show in general that no quantum correlations can be used in this way to signal. In fact, it's, it's, it's a nice way of sort of narrowing down possible structures that the quantum theory might have. But the requirement that you can't signal isn't enough to rule out this for me, a rather extraordinary situation. It's useless. Well, it's not completely useless. It's recent applications have been found in cryptography. B-physics. Hmm? B-physics. B-physics. But the, 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 the information theoretical, yeah. Yeah, no, you certainly produce such states. Yeah. Presumably, the fact that it's useless for the type of applications no. you were asked about was part of Bohr's answer to Einstein. Um, I don't know if that was so? Bohr's answer, that it's useless. He, he never actually says you can't use it to signal. Well, if he, he didn't, then others have. I mean, isn't that yeah. part of the view of the subject? Of That's a, I mean, if you could use it to signal, that would be spectacular. And, you know, and then relativity would be in trouble and all kinds of things would be in trouble. Well, so it's encouraging that you can't use it to signal. Well, but Bohr, I think, tried to answer on what it means to say that something has a property. And his answer seemed to be that uh, well, you cannot separate properties of a thing from the means you use to ascertain those properties, even if those means involve doing things to stuff left behind. Well, I probably shouldn't have phrased this in terms of what Bohr said, which I didn't yeah. know. Okay. But I think that... From our contemporary point of view, yeah. as you just said a moment ago, it is part of the consistency uh, of the whole picture. Yes. Relativity and quantum mechanics work, partly yeah. because of what you remarked in the answer yes. to the previous question. Yes. Yes, it's very important. And in fact, if I ever am brave enough to give this talk again, I, I should probably add that. Except that I, I would probably run out of time before I got to it. <laughs> Okay, well, if there are no more uh, questions, let's thank you.